Our text this evening is roughly Genesis 42, 25 through 28. We'll be uh, returning to our exposition of 2 Kings next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Uh, we're, going to be, we're going to begin reading here in verse 1 in chapter 42 through the end of the chapter. This is God's inspired and infallible word. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, that we, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may come to him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the famine of the land of Canaan, uh, for rather the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. And he said to them, You are spies. You've come to look at the land. Uh, Rather, you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested, and by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put all them They put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. As for the rest of you, go, carry the grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty 
concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? But now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus, it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then his brothers, then he said rather to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? The reading of God's holy word be seated as we turn to the Lord in prayer to seek his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his word. Lord, our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and you have given your spirit as a light to illumine your word to our hearts and minds. And we pray, as your word is preached, that you would help us to see Christ exalted in your word, that you would help us to see Christ revealed in your word, that the Spirit would minister in our hearts to give us understanding and insight into the Holy Scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The history of Joseph is one of the most compelling narratives in the Bible. It has all the components of a piece of fine literature, foreshadowing the use of hints or clues to suggest what will happen later in the account. Conflict, in this case between Joseph and his brothers. Rising action, a series of events that builds from the conflict. Crisis. The conflict reaches a turning point, and at this juncture, the opposing forces in the story meet, and their conflict becomes the most intense. Climax, it's the high point of the account for the reader, the moment of highest interest and greatest emotion. Falling action the events after the climax uh, that close the story. And then resolution, which 
rounds out and concludes the action of the account. That's what makes Joseph's account one of my favorites in Scripture. But the Joseph narrative is much more than compelling literature. The Holy Spirit penned this portion of Genesis by the hand of Moses as a part of the unfolding revelation of Jesus Christ. Joseph is presented as a type of Christ, one of the clearest pictures, if not the most clearest pictures of Christ among the patriarchs and perhaps in all of the Old Testament scriptures, most evident in Joseph's exaltation to power from a position of extreme humility. Consequently, it's apparent to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that the Holy Spirit has gospel purposes in the Joseph narrative. The fullness of Christ is unfolded in the history of Joseph. Our text presents a full Christ for empty sinners. There are several gospel principles illustrated in verses 25 to 28. The first thing our text shows us is that sinners must come to Christ full of need but empty of self. Sinners must come to Christ full of need but empty of self. Necessity brought Joseph's brothers to the land of Egypt. Jacob and his sons were starving in Canaan. The famine had left them destitute of any food so that they would have starved to death if the sons hadn't gone to Egypt. We get a sense of the magnitude of uh, the famine as Jacob speaks to his sons in verses 1 uh, and 2. Jacob saw that uh, there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, uh, Why are you staring at each other? Get busy. Get going. Go to the land of Egypt. I'd he- I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some from that place so that we may live and not die. This is a, a matter of life and death for this family in Canaan. And there was no place else for them to get food. The, the famine was so widespread in those days that they had no other choice but to go to the only place where they could get food. They must go to Joseph. He held the key to their deliverance from the famine. God had invested Joseph with a spirit of wisdom so that he filled the storehouses of Egypt with grain sufficient to supply all the needs of Egypt and all the needs of the land 
around them. Sinners must come to Christ. They must come to Christ, but they won't come to Christ until they sense that they need Him. Until that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit takes place, convincing them of their sins. They must first come to grip with their uh, great need, in fact, their uh, greatest need, until they see that they're left with no other choice, no other recourse, but to go to Jesus. Conviction of sin is what creates the need in a sinner's heart. And there's no place else they can go for deliverance but to Christ. It pleased God, Paul says, to have all of his fullness to dwell in his Son so that Jesus has all wisdom and his righteous life and sacrifice is sufficient to save all who come to him by faith. Necessity brought Joseph's brothers. Necessity brings sinners to Christ. And Joseph's brothers brought empty vessels to him. How many empty sacks did they bring to Egypt? It doesn't matter how many sacks they brought. They could have brought all the sacks in Canaan. And Joseph had the sufficiency to fill them all. What's the spiritual condition of the soul brought to Christ that savingly receives Christ? Empty. This does away with the the notion uh, that many have that uh, there must be some kind of moral preconditioning before they can come to Jesus, that, uh, that they must first clean up, clean up their act before they uh, can come uh, to the Lord, to approach God, to, to seek forgiveness of the false notion that I have to get my act together first, and then I can darken the door of a church. Jesus said, it's not only those who are well, who need, uh, rather it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. One word describes the spiritual condition which Christ expects a sinner, with which Christ expects a sinner to come to him empty. Joseph's brethren did nothing more but to grab their empty sacks and to go to Joseph. The soul-seeking Christ must recognize his sinfulness and he must be emptied of his love for sin. So the first question I have have for you tonight is this. Have you sensed your great need 
for Christ has the Holy Spirit done that work necessary in your heart to turn your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh so that you'll be convinced of your sin and misery and your neediness as a sinner. Children, is this true of you? Have you sensed your need? Have you truly sensed your need for the Lord Jesus Christ? The second question to consider is, have you been empty? Have you been emptied of all notions of self-righteousness, of self-sufficiency, of of presenting yourself to God with uh, any kind of merit that would be acceptable before Him? The third question is, Have you gone to Christ to receive of his fullness? Children, young people, adults alike, have you truly, have you sincerely gone to Christ to receive of his fullness? And if not, may I ask any who are listening, will you not go to Christ to receive of his fullness? Why would you not go to Christ to receive of his fullness? How do we go to Christ to receive of his fullness? The Bible tells us clearly, does it not? We go to Christ by faith. We receive Christ by faith. We receive the fullness of Christ through the means of grace that the Bible calls faith in Jesus Christ. The whole of the Christian experience is about sensing your need for Christ, being emptied of self, going to Christ to be filled. One of the most stirring passages in the Gospels, I think, is in John chapter 6. It comes after the the bread of, of life discourse in which Jesus has said some things that the people had difficulty swallowing. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have no part in me. He taught these things in Capernaum. John 6, verse 60 says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement, or this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Mind you, he's speaking to his Disciples here. His disciples are the ones who are grumbling. There are many of you who do not believe, he said. Many of those who were following Christ did not truly believe. 
And verse 66 says that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. But this is what I think is so stirring about this passage. So Jesus said to the twelve, Jesus, uh, obviously those who were departed were of the larger group of disciples that were following Jesus, and he turned to the twelve, and he said, you do not want to go away also, do you? And this is what always gets me when I read this section of John's Gospel. Simon Peter, blessed Simon Peter, impetuous Simon Peter, but a, the one who always seemed to have a confession of Christ on his lips, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's no place else to go, believers. Truly, there is no place else to go to be filled in your souls except to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen first then that sinners must come to Christ full of need, but empty of self. The second gospel principle that we observe from our text is that salvation is of free grace. Very important gospel principle. Joseph's brethren brought money with them to purchase grain. Verses 2, 3, and 5. This illustrates a a deep-seated notion in the human heart that a person may somehow purchase salvation with his merit. Self-righteousness is as innate a principle in the human nature as any other principle found in it. The very first idea that many sinners seeking salvation have is to bring a price in their hand to God. Something that they think will commend them to God. Some self-preparation or self-merit. And this notion must be driven out of any seeking soul before he can be saved. The soul-seeking Christ must first Be emptied of all self-righteousness, any false notion that he has any power to save himself by his own efforts. We discern the principle of free grace in Joseph's return of his brother's money. Uh, Scripture is filled with statements that make clear that salvation is of free grace. One of the clearest is found In Isaiah 55, this familiar and wondrous Old Testament text, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money 
for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen to me that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon the New Testament parallel to Isaiah 55 is found in Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. Paul informs us that grace is a gift in many places. When have you ever paid money for a gift? Children, when have you ever paid any money for a birthday present or uh, a Christmas present? The only time we pay money for a gift is when we've been swindled. Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. It's engraved in stone. It's written with indelible ink. Salvation is of free grace. We are justified and pardoned without any works of righteousness. By the works of the law, no man shall be saved, Paul says, Romans 3. Without any merit of our own, it's a free gift from God. No one who comes to Christ empty and poor is rejected. Only the one who brings his own money, his own righteousness, is rejected. We've seen that sinners must come to Christ full of need but empty of self. We've seen, secondly, that salvation is of free grace. Thirdly, we see that God offers abundant grace and full pardon through Christ. God pours out his abundant grace. God releases his storehouse of grace from heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. Another principle illustrated by the return money is that Christ gives beyond what sinners ask of him. Joseph's brethren came expecting to buy life-sustaining food. And they returned home with it. 
But they also return home with the full purchase price of the grain. And not only did Joseph return the full, uh, the, the grain and their money, but he gave them provisions for the journey. What a wondrous illustration of God's abundant provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is highlighting an important gospel truth here. God is not only a prayer answering God, but a prayer exceeding God. Christ's answers exceed our requests. We go to Christ with limited limited requests and circumscribed petitions, but Christ responds with gifts that far surpass our expectations and that overflow the bounds of our circumscribed supplications. This truth caused Paul to launch into one of his many doxological outbursts in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God pours out his abundant grace. God lavishes his abundant grace upon sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ grants full pardon to all who seek it. In order to appreciate what Joseph did for his brothers, we need to recall what they had done to him. They deeply wronged him, throwing him into a pit in the wilderness, selling him into slavery, ultimately resulting in his imprisonment and mistreatment in Egypt. And yet he treated them kindly, forgiving and forgetting the injury and returning blessing for their wrongs. In order to appreciate what Christ has done for sinners, we must remember what sinners have done to him. Though your sins and my sins nailed him to the cross, wounding him deeply, and though you've sinned against him a thousand times and more since receiving full pardon, he loves you still. He treats you kindly, forgiving and forgetting all of your transgressions and returning blessing for all of your wrongs. Recall that even in Christ's dying agonies, he prayed for his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The last thing we notice here Concerning this third point is that people are slow to accept Christ's pardon 
and blessing. This is illustrated by the reaction Joseph's brothers had to the discovery of the return money in only one sack. They're going to discover that their money or their money is returned in all of their sacks. They understood, uh, rather they misunderstood jo- Joseph's kind intentions. Uh, they were suspicious of his gracious provision. One of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging. He saw the money. Behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been returned. And behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And so it is with every human being. People question how God could offer grace freely. Nothing is free, they say. So it must cost something. They question how God could forgive the sins they have committed against him and the sins that they've committed against others. How can God forgive the sins of which I am so deeply ashamed? We're slow to believe the promise of answered prayer. And we're surprised when God not only answers it, but abundantly so. And in spite of our unbelief and sin. Is salvation truly free? Does God hear us when we pray? Does he answer the prayers of those who are weak in faith? Does he forgive all my sins, even all of the horrible things that I've done? Perhaps you've asked yourselves these questions in one form or another a hundred or even hundreds of times. The text before us illustrates truths that are important to keep in mind from the very outset of your journey in grace to its conclusion in glory. God has provided a full Christ for needy and empty sinners. He will have dealings with no other. Those who come to him thinking they're rich in works and righteousness, he sends away. And they go away empty. The only sinner he rejects is the one who comes with money in his hands. But those who come to him poor in spirit, with nothing in their hands, he sends away full. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked. I come to him for dress. And Christ sends us away fully clothed. Christ's salvation is for the lost. Christ's blood is for the guilty. 
Christ's grace is for the poor in spirit and the humble in heart. Come then as you are with your empty sacks and Christ will fill them to the full. Come again and again. Come often. Come pleading his promises. Come pleading the promises of grace that uh, that God has given us in Christ. God offers free and abundant grace to all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ and who continue to seek him. Salvation is all of grace. Christ's answers exceed all that we could ask or think of him. Why do we not ask? We do not have because we do not ask. Why are we so remiss in prayer? Why don't we use the means that God has given us? Why don't we come often and boldly with confidence before the throne of grace? If this is what God promises to do. Christ's atonement is infinitely deep, covering all of our sins. He forgives and he forgets them all as our gracious Savior. All the blessing is ours. All the glory belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are without words to express to you our gratitude for the grace that you lavish upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a forgetful people we are. How often we grumble instead of turning to you in thanks for the grace that's been revealed in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. How often, O Lord, uh, we are inept in expressing our thanksgiving to you. We don't have words to express to you. Uh, the thanksgiving that wells up in our hearts because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. We ask, O oh God, that you would fill us to the full with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would lavish upon us the riches of your grace through our union with Christ by faith, and that you'd make us mindful all the days of our lives that we are debtors to you, O God, debtors to the grace that you have shown to us through our glorious Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our hymn of response is number 80 in the Trinity Hymnal.